Welcome to the Healthful Woman Podcast, the fastest growing podcast in women's health. Today's Monday, September 19th, 2022. We continue today with part two of our four-part mini-series on midwifery, leading up to National Midwifery Week, the first week in October. Last week, we dropped the podcast I did with Lauren Abrams titled, We Love Midwives. And now we're going to have three straight weeks of podcasts focused on home birth. Today's podcast is a very interesting intro to home birth. It's a podcast I did with Amber Wormsley last year as part of our High Risk Birth Stories podcast. Amber is a friend of mine and an OBGYN who chose to have a home birth. Now, this is a relatively unusual decision for a hospital-based OBGYN, and Amber tells her reasoning behind this decision and her overall experience with her home birth, which was positive. We then speak about home birth in general from the perspective, of course, of two obstetricians. Next week and the week after, I'm going to be joined by Lauren Abrams from last week's podcast, as well as Susan Rachel Condon, who is a very experienced home birth midwife. So you're going to get the perspective on home birth from a home birth midwife, as well as a midwife who works in a hospital. And for me, of course, you just can't get rid of me. For now, enjoy Amber's story of her home birth. Thanks for listening. Have a great week. Welcome to today's episode of Healthful Woman, a podcast designed to explore topics in women's health at all stages of life. I'm your host, Dr. Nathan Fox, an OBGYN and maternal fetal medicine specialist practicing in New York City. At Healthful Woman, I speak with leaders in the field to help you learn more about women's health, pregnancy, and wellness. All right, Dr. Amber Wormsley. Amber, welcome to the podcast. It's so nice to talk to you. I miss you. (laughs) <laughs> Same here. Wow. So, so Amber, as as you know, but our listeners might not, uh, you were uh, an OBGYN resident at Mount Sinai in the famous class of 2012, famous for many reasons, but I would say mostly because four of you now, as of this podcast, <laughs> have been on my podcast, right? Melka, of course, who is your roommate, and then Jalinthia and, and Gazelka. We just had, it's unbelievable. Well, that's because, I mean, I'm not biased or anything, but we are the best class that Sinai has ever put out. So Since, 20, with, since with 2005. Possibly, since 2005. I'll give you that. Since 2005, we are, we are hands down the best class. So I'm not surprised in the least. Right. And, and you're, not, you're not coming today specifically as an OBGYN expert, although you are. Uh, that's <laughs> not the reason you're on the podcast. You're here to tell your own birth story. We're going to be talking mostly about your birth of Olivia. She's a little bit over a year now, right? Yes. Yes. She just turned a year in June. And so we're talking about that, but you do have another. You have SJ, who is, I yes. guess, uh, four and a half. He's four and a half now. Yes. He just started pre-K today, actually. I just dropped him off this morning at pre-K. Oh my God. Did he make it through the full day? Oh yeah. He he loves it. Did they make him wear two masks and a helmet and a body, body shields? Uh, everything and above. <laughs> <laughs> He's in a hazmat suit for pre-K. Exactly. That's good. Exactly. Yeah. L- lest he infect another pre-K. So just a- as a little bit of background, tell us who you are, where you're from, you know, how you got into OBGYN, and then we'll talk about your births after that. Sure. Um, so I'm actually originally from Southern California, but we kind of just moved around a lot as a family and wound up on the East Coast. My mom was um, was a nurse in the uh, NICU. So I actually kind of grew up being in the NICU, being around babies. Um, My dad was in computer science and IT field, but was always super supportive of my interest in biology and sending me to science camps and things like that. Um, And I actually, (laughs) 
So, yes, I am. I'm a true nerd to the core. I make no apologies. I'm such a nerd. And I actually always thought I wanted to do pediatrics. I just assumed I would actually be a neonatologist because I was always around the NICU. And during medical school, I just quickly realized that that isn't really what interested me. And I started volunteering on the labor and delivery floor just because I thought it would be cool to see a birth. I still thought I was going to be a pediatrician. And Uh, I kept taking shifts, volunteering, and actually volunteering to stay overnight. And all of a sudden, the residents were like, you're here all the time, and this is not your rotation. Are you going into OB? And I was like, no, no, I'm not. I, I... I, uh, I'm just volunteering. And then all of a sudden one day it hit me like, oh, this is what I love. Wow. So that's actually how I came into OB. Yeah. And you were in med school uh, in Buffalo, right? Correct. And yes. That's a far cry from Southern California. It is. We had actually already moved to Maryland at that point. So we had already been to the East Coast. And then my senior year of high school wound up moving to um, upstate New York. And so because of that, I kind of got into the New York school system for both college and then just stayed for medical school as well. Right. And you got a, a heavy winter coat. Exactly. And that's exactly why for residency, I was like, absolutely not. And I only entertained DC and New York. And that's how I wound up with Sinai. <laughs> so you did your residency at Mount Sinai, obviously, yes. for OBGYN. You were yes. roommates with the great Dr. Melka. Yes, uh, what, forever what, and yeah, ever. What, what, what was that like? This is great. I get to we get to talk about Melka without her being here to, <laughs> to interject and, and, you know, debate. We always joke that she was kind of like either um, a parent or like my personal assistant because she was so much more grown up than I was. She would remind me to eat dinner because I would. We always joke now about how I'll just make myself a bowl of cereal, and she that's would, dinner. She that come, counts. She comes from this awesome Italian family and would like make me from scratch meatballs and all of these amazing sausages and meals and would remind me things and send emails on my behalf. So we always joke. We got to be chairs together our coaches together for our last year and it was it was just awesome so we have a special bond <laughs> and and you've also done a lot of international work OBGYN wise yes. so tell us about that yeah so um, it started in medical school. I actually went on my own and did a lot of work in Ecuador both to learn the language and just learn about other health systems and wound up falling in love with international medicine at the time started my own nonprofit to actually bring medical students down to expose them um, and would do kind of like six-week programs with them. And so I would lead that out down there in Ecuador. And then actually after finishing residency, I was able to go down there both in terms of working with some residents on some projects and also working as an attending down there uh, at a hospital that had no OBs in the middle of the jungle. So that was awesome. And even throughout my residency, I piggybacked on some of the other trips that were there. So I did some cervical cancer screening in El Salvador. I did some GYN surgeries in Nicaragua. So that's always been near and dear to my heart. The hospital that I'm at now, actually, pretty much 90% of the women are from Central America and recent immigrants. So I kind of still feel that connection, even though I'm, I'm based here in uh, the D.C. metro area. Wow. And then when did you decide to start your family? My husband and I met in New York, actually. Um, I had come back from Ecuador and was there back at Sinai um, in private practice as well as working for the hospital. Um, I met my husband there and we were married in 2015. And about a year later is when we decided to start. You know, I was oh, old AMA, whatever you want to call it. So. <laughs> 
So I was kind of, you know, it's that tension of like, well, we want some time together, but we also don't want to wait too long. So we'd been together a year and we were like, all right, well, I kind of felt if I don't do it now, I might just decide not to do it. So let's just do it before I change my mind. <laughs> right. And so that's, so SJ was born in February, 2017, but you were, yes. he was born in Maryland, correct? Yeah. So after um, being married, we had kind of talked about our long-term plans and I had kind of known that I didn't want to stay in New York long-term. Discussing kind of the different options, Maryland was always a second home to me because I had actually come here when I was in junior high school. My dad was here. My mom is here now, not at the time, but my dad was here. I had cousins here um, and I thought it would be kind of a nice bridge for my husband um, being a lawyer, that there'd be a lot of opportunities in DC, but I would still get more of the suburb life in Maryland. So we um, agreed to move down here. So we actually moved here in the middle of my pregnancy, mm. um, which was uh, my my OCD, like being in control brain was kind of annoyed because then I had to go through the whole process of finding doctors with, you know, and I didn't know who anyone was where at Sinai. I had my doctors picked. I had my nurse picked. I probably had my L&D room picked out, you know. <laughs> like, <laughs> I want that pillow. That's the pillow exactly. I want. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> this is the nurse. This is how it's going to happen. This is exactly what's going to happen. So, you know, being a control freak, I came down here and was like, oh my goodness, like, what do I do now? So... <laughs> So t tell me about that birth uh, briefly. We'll talk about, you know, SJ briefly, and then we'll spend a lot more time on Olivia's pregnancy and delivery. Yeah, so I had a very uncomplicated, easy pregnancy. I do have to say I was very lucky without complications besides some annoying heartburn. I was pretty uncomplicated besides being AMA. I was 36 at the time, and everything was going smoothly. Uh, I had my 39-week checkup and absolutely nothing was going on. I'd been going on for my weekly ultrasounds. And so it was funny because my all of the women on my immediate family have very quick, fast first births. My mom had me very quickly within a few hours. My aunt did. Their mother did. But I always joked with them that, you know, that's it's not your birth story is not genetic per se. And they were all like, 19 years old. So I was like, all right, your 19 year old body, you know, knew exactly what to do. I'm 36 and this could be a whole new ball game. And, you know, in my mind now I'm the wise OB, so I know better than my mother. Right. right. Yeah. Good luck with that. So, so nothing was going on at all. I was actually three days before my due date. I had talked potentially about a possible induction. I was kind of on the fence with when I didn't really have any specific ideas of what I wanted to happen, but I was like, eh, if things could just happen by themselves, I would prefer that. So it was funny. Nothing was going on at all. I kind of woke up feeling a little, just couldn't sleep around two in the morning, went down to watch some TV around 4 a.m. I was like, oh, maybe it's the first time ever that I'm getting Brexit Hicks. Maybe that I was just watching TV. My husband came down and around 5 a.m., uh, I remember I couldn't even make it through like five minutes left of a show. Contractions just came out of nowhere. And I got in the shower and I remember he was timing them and he was like, another one? It hasn't even been a minute yet. And I was like, what? And, you know, the whole idea when you tell people, oh, it'll be like maybe every 20 minutes or 15 minutes and then five minutes and call us when it's been more than a few hours or five minutes apart. I, I literally went from nothing, feeling nothing to severe contractions every minute on top of each other. Like they wouldn't even finish sometimes before another one would come. And so he was like, should I call the doctor? I was like, absolutely not. It's been 20 minutes. Like right. I'm an OB. Crazy. It's so embarrassing. I, I'm an OB. I can't, I can't call them and tell them I've had a contraction contractions for 20 minutes. And so finally he didn't know what to do. He went to go get my mom <laughs> and my mom walks in the room. This was like at six o'clock in the morning. She walks in and sees me and she's like, unless you want to have this baby here, 
get in the car. And I was like, mom, you don't know what you're talking about. You know, I'm the wise will be in between my contractions. I couldn't, now mind you, I couldn't even get up to get my shoes yeah, on. You're like, my mom, mom, you don't know <laughs> exactly what you're talking about. <laughs> she had to literally like help me put shoes on. And she's like, this is what I look like. This is what my labor looks like. And you are in labor. And I'm like, I'm going to get there and they're going to send me home. You know, in my mind, I just was so focused on, you know, this can't be real. And sure enough, I got there. And um, I mean, everything happened really quickly. But the nurse initially checked me and said I was about five centimeters. And shortly after that, that my MD came in and she was going to check me herself because I actually was kind of showing signs that maybe I was already kind of getting ready to push. And she was about to check me and then got called. I could actually hear over the intercom, got called for some emergency to another room. So she ran out and was kind of like, all right, well, it's her first baby. She's five. You know, she has time. Go ahead. If she can get an epidural, if she wants. And in my mind, I was like, five centimeters for a first time, mom, this could still be hours and I can't do this for hours. And so I was like, yes, epidural. And I got the epidural. And literally when she came back to check me, I was nine and a half centimeters. Wow. So I think we got to the hospital at like seven something. Unfortunately, after the epidural, just he did not like it. My blood pressure dropped. I just kind of had those classic issues with my blood pressure dropping, his heart rate dropping, flipping me all around different positions and kind of being a little concerned about that at the end. So I labored down for about an hour and then began pushing and literally pushed within five minutes. Wow. It was very, very hectic because, and I, you know, I'm half watching the tracing too. And he was definitely just still not really tolerating everything with the epidural. Um, but luckily I pushed really quickly. He was born at like 10 in the morning after we wow. got there at like seven something in the morning. You were so. looking at your own tracing? Yes, I was. Oh, I, I remember man. at one point I would, I would, I would have been so mad at you. I remember at one point looking at my husband being like, they're going to suction me. I, I would like see a big dip and I, I was flipping myself over. I was holding the monitor. So my whole first pregnancy, I was very much an OB. It was almost like a science experiment. Like, let me see if what I tell everyone is actually real. Let me see if this is what it's actually like. And I really felt like, an OB that was kind of just secondhandedly experiencing the pregnancy, which we'll talk about was very different from with my second experience. But, you know, even the, even the appointments for my whole first half of the pregnancy when I was in New York, I didn't really go to any appointments. I was like, I, you know, while I was at work, I would have them check my blood pressure and I would do the labs that I needed, you know? So very much kind of that mentality of like, well, they have nothing to tell me that I don't already know. And I had to go to, you know, my prenatal appointments when I came here to Maryland, but it was very much like, all right, well, I'll go. And then my husband can ask questions, but I don't, I don't need to know anything, right? Very much that mentality of like, what can you tell me? I do this for a living. So it was just very kind of rushed and hectic and very much like, oh my gosh, I'm going to get sectioned. And then at that moment feeling like, oh, is this what people feel like? That like I was crying and my husband's like, it's going to be okay. <laughs> and my mom, you know, my mom is like, you're going to push the baby out in like two seconds. Stop worrying. And I'm like, you don't know that mom. <laughs> you know, it turns out, it turns out she was right the whole time. So, <laughs> yeah. so. lesson number one, listen to your mother. Always, always. I'm going to have her listen to this and she's going to say, absolutely, listen to your mother. Listen to your mother, especially if I'm the mother. Yeah. Yes. Yes. <laughs> so after that second time around, right, for Olivia, how was it different? Uh, obviously, you're in, you're in Maryland the whole time. Was it the same? Was it the same doctors? It wasn't. So 
Oh, it's, it's the condensed version. It's so hard to find the condensed version. But I had actually been kind of on my own, even outside of pregnancy, I had been on my own kind of professional and personal journey just about my philosophy of births and just learning more about my field and understanding more about history and this country. And um, it kind of had led me down a path of wanting to learn more information about midwifery care in this country and home births. I had actually already met up and been, I'd been shadowing a home birth midwife for about two years, just professionally. And um, she had invited me in and I had, I would come into her, come into her sessions and um, I was even invited to some of the births. So I'd actually developed a relationship with her and professionally was just amazed at the quality of care she gave and really her expertise. And so it was, a, I always would joke, I was like, well, if I decide to have a second line, you know, who knows, maybe I'll I'll go to you. But I actually, I think deep down, didn't really think I would do that. Just, I think being an OB and just intrinsically always being trained that that's so quote unquote dangerous. I just kind of said it jokingly. So what happened actually was I found out I was pregnant right before the funeral of my brother. He suddenly passed away without warning. And it was obviously a huge shock and, and very difficult for our family and just kind of came out of nowhere. He was my um, only biological brother. He was eight years younger than me. So I was kind of like his second mom. So it was uh, obviously extremely tra traumatizing. And I, I literally found out I was pregnant a couple weeks before the funeral. So I, with everything I had learned, feeling very comfortable from a safety standpoint, knowing how my first birth went. I immediately called up the midwife I was working with, Mari, and I was like, all right, I'm pregnant and I'm going to come see you. I just knew that I needed a different type of care, a different level of care. I knew that emotionally I would need to be supported differently. And I wanted to feel like a mom this time. It was very hard to simultaneously kind of grieve my sibling and then also celebrate that I was giving my child a sibling. It was just very, it was just very taxing. And so I just wanted something different. The last time I was in a hospital was, you know, saying goodbye to my brother. And so we, I had just kind of decided, you know, as long as things are safe and things are going well, I want to be here in the comfort of my own home and just have supported loved ones with me here. That was before COVID. So I was actually, had already been planning this. It took my husband a little bit more time to get on board because he's just by nature a little bit more risk conscious. So it was a little bit harder for him to really feel comfortable and get on board, but he did. One of the things that I struggled with actually was how was I going to tell my family? How was I going to tell my friends and peers? What will they think of me? You know, there's a lot of that um, judgment that you feel. And so it was kind of funny because I was kind of wrestling with how I was going to tell family members. And then COVID hit. And I actually remember my dad asking me, like, you know, when everyone was concerned about being in the hospital, he was like, well, do you have a backup plan if it's really bad? And, you know, at the time you couldn't have a potentially a partner with you. And it was just kind of funny because when I told them that I had a, was going to have a home birth, everyone was relieved. <laughs> Yes. It's so it, it it was almost like oh thank God like you don't have to go to the hospital unless you need to you know wow do you do you think if your if your brother had not passed away if you didn't have that experience you would not have considered a home birth I mean because you were saying that you were sort of in the back of your mind maybe maybe but you probably wouldn't have pulled the trigger and that was sort of the the event that maybe put you over into that but what do you think would have happened otherwise again knowing that COVID you know happened and all that. I'm just curious. Yeah, I don't know. You know, I definitely on paper 
really believed in the safety of it in, in, in a select group of people. Mm-hmm. And so I kind of already had time to do the research and look into the numbers. And so from a head perspective, I totally was on board. But sometimes it's still hard to get over that what you've been taught and what you've been ingrained with and culture and what other people are going to think. And I don't know if I would have been able to pull the trigger or if it would have been easier to just kind of go with the flow. And, and we did have, you know, I didn't have some traumatic first birth experience. I really appreciated my OBs. I don't think it compares at all to home birth. I just think that if it's possible, being at home is just amazing. But that being said, I, I really did love my OBs and my husband really liked them. And I think it might have been easier to just stay with the status quo. And I think having that emotional need that really pushed things over was what made it easier to make the decision for myself and also for my husband to get on board. Got it. And I think that it would have been a little bit harder to get over that hump outside of that. So I don't know. I I honestly don't know if I would have definitively done that. I would like to say that I hope I would have, although I think it would have been a tougher call. When you had made the decision and that was your plan, did you have any times throughout the pregnancy where you would just be like, oh my God, what am I doing? What if A happens? What if B happens? Because listen, you're an OB. You know all yeah, the crazy absolutely. things that can happen. Did, did that yeah. happen a lot or was it sort of not something you thought about so much? You know, what was going on in your head? Part of it is just going to be your baseline personality. So I actually live five minutes from my hospital. So I felt comfortable, you know, when you look at the literature, the, the number one reason for transfer is for just a stalled out long labor or like, like that's not happening to my family. Yeah. Or, like, <laughs> or even if it does, it's not emergent, like postpartum hemorrhages or th- those things that you have time, right? right. Even in, the, in the, an emergency, sometimes when a non-reassuring tracing, like when you actually look at the time elapsed of, of, of doing something, it's, it's a fair amount of time. True emergencies you know, cord prolapses. Yes, you have these isolated events, but that can also happen even, you know, I've heard of cases of, you know, someone wakes up, they break their water and they have a cord prolapse at home, right? right? So you'd have to hospitalize someone for their entire pregnancy to really ensure zero bad outcomes. And that's not even true because in a hospital, I think we have this misperception that the hospital is some magical place that prevents any bad outcomes. And one of the things that helped me, um, and it's strange that I say it this way, but I actually had a unexpected, very bad outcome with a baby that I was taking care of that I delivered about two or three years back. And it was very devastating for me um, emotionally to come back from that. And, you know, playing it over and over and over again. There's nothing that I would have done differently. It's just one of those things that are unexpected. And they were in this safe place, right? They were in this hospital. They were in the right place and and doing everything. And yet it didn't protect you from having one of those rare bad outcomes. And so for me, I kind of lumped it in that same boat that there's no perfect place to to prevent that. It it, It is what it is. And when you actually think about it, you know, the U.S. has one of the highest mortality rates, unfortunately, of moms and babies in the developed world, and yet 99% of our births happen in the hospital. So obviously, the hospital is not some magical place that prevents all bad outcomes, right? So I think that that really allowed me to just look at it differently, and knowing that I was in very trusted hands that I had observed for, you know, this wasn't just I was going to some random person. This is someone that I felt extremely comfortable with because from an OB perspective, I had actually spent the last two years seeing her in action. 
um, as well as knowing that I was around the corner from my hospital, as well as knowing that I had a very uncomplicated first-time birth, really made me feel very comfortable. I, n- I never, ever worried about something bad happening, actually. I felt more stressed about something bad happening with my first when I was in the hospital. Because yeah. it's just this, this layer of stress that something bad could happen. Because you're there to prevent bad things from happening. So by definition, that means something bad can happen. Right. So it's really weird. I felt it never once crossed my mind. What did cross my mind was that if something were to happen, everyone would judge you. Right? right. If something bad happens in a hospital, oh, that's so horrible. Poor you. But if something happens at home, it's all your fault. It definitely helps that you're so close to the hospital and yes. the first you know, baby came so fast and so easy that you're not expecting this to be a, a drawn out process. Absolutely. Yeah. Did did you get a lot of crap from your colleagues? Let's say forget about family and friends, yeah. whatever. I mean, because, you know, you're an OB. So people are yes. going to say like, what? Like you work in the hospital. Like, why yes. wouldn't you deliver there? Yes. So that was actually what I was worried about. I think even more so for my fam- than my family, because I feel like with my family, I can pull the well, I'm the expert in the field, so obviously I know what right. I'm doing. Either so I, off. yeah, either I or my mom is the expert yes. in the field. <laughs> exactly. The rest, of, the rest, you keep quiet. Okay. Exactly. Exactly. So I was less worried about my family. I was actually more kind of just from a judgment standpoint worried about like, oh my gosh, what are my colleagues going to think about me? And I remember that I texted a couple of people that I felt closer to, and was really surprised and impressed by the response. Like one person was like, oh, that's awesome. You're an awesome candidate for it. Like, tell me about it. And, you know, I talked about like what I, some of my own research and things that I had learned over the last few years. And they were like, that's awesome. And some people were even like, oh, that's great. Wish I could do it. And, you know, even the people that were more hesitant were like, wow, you know, I could tell they weren't necessarily on board, but they were like, well, obviously, obviously, you know, we know that we feel that you're a good OB and (laughs) know what you're doing. and you know, we have to, on some level, trust that judgment. And so it was actually way more positive than I was expecting. One of my colleagues where I work now trained in Europe and she was like, oh yeah, that, you should do that. That's great. Like that's, you know, for her, it was par for the course. Like, why not? You know, all of our data shows there's no difference at all in, in outcomes, moms or babies. So she was like, absolutely, you should do that. So that just gave me even more like, okay, I'm not crazy. One of the things that actually shifted my mindset a lot is that it's very much ingrained that it is not safe for anybody. And I think in, in, in schooling and residency here in the U.S., we kind of have that mentality that no one should ever do that unless it's by accident. And obviously, many other countries in the world do not take that stance. And, you know, Scandinavia, some other places, and it's very much part of the system, integrated into the system with no difference in outcomes. And, you know, when you watch documentaries or things, it's very easy to say, they don't know what they're talking about. It's a bunch of people that want experience over safety and don't know the real risk. Just like you said, I'm an OB, I know the risk. And there was a documentary that I came across actually called Why Not Home? And it was specifically about OBs, family medicine doctors that do deliveries and labor and delivery nurses, all of whom work in hospital settings and they all chose home births for themselves. So that really piqued my interest because I was like, okay, all these other, you know, documentaries or what have you, you can say they don't know what they're talking about. But these are a group of quote unquote my peers that see it every day, do it every day. What do they know or think or see that I don't? And I think after that documentary, plus my own research and investigation, it just really changed my perspective of 
it's a conversation about risk and benefits. And I think we underplay the risks that can be associated with hospital birth as well. One of the examples that came to my mind was I'm a big proponent of VBACs. I know for a fact you offer VBACs and do many of VBAC. Mm-hmm. And we know that you have an inside source of Melka. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, we have to counsel about risk of uterine rupture. And by definition, if you have an increased u- risk of uterine rupture, potentially you can have an increased risk of fetal death, correct? Like that, that's a, just a factual statement that if you look at the population level, you are going to probably have more, potentially more, you know, fetal harm outcomes with a VBAC versus a repeat section. But there's a whole host on the other side of potential gains. When we counsel someone and someone wants to VBAC, even if they're increase, increasing potential risks of certain complications, we're not berating them about how dare they, they're potentially putting themselves in a situation where they can have a uterine rupture and a dead baby. Right. We don't say that to them. Right. But why? Because that's a factual statement. Why? Right. I mean, I've been in uterine rupture in cases. I've been in really horrible neonatal outcome cases, but we don't, we don't look at it from that perspective. We look at it a perspective of two things, risk and benefits. What's the harm and benefit on both sides? And number two, absolute versus relative risk. And that's one of the things that I learned with you in our, in our weekly, you know, Torture sessions. Exactly. Our <laughs> lovely rounds of learning how to read through literature. And, you know, you can say something, oh, there's two to three times more likely of this bad event. But if you're talking about, you know, one in a million versus two in a million, are you really, right? you know, is, is that worth everything else that you're giving up? And so I think those two things, kind of the idea of risk benefit counseling and absolute relative risk, yeah. for me change the conversation and change the the dialogue. Yeah, I think, I mean, obviously, listen, you're super duper smart and you know what's going <laughs> on. I, I think what's interesting is, you know, if you look at the the data on home births and, you know, all the countries, you know, you mentioned that they do it and they do it really well and outcomes are the same. I think most people would agree that it's appropriate there because they have a good system set up. Yes. And I think that part of the reason there's a lot of debate in this country there is debate on sort of a philosophical level, like you said, some people yes. like, you know, experience over, you know, uh, health or whatever it is. And there's that level and that exists. But I think even on, let's call a pure level of just looking at it from a data perspective, right? So you had an option to do it in your home, which is five minutes from a hospital with a midwife that you know knows what she's doing, right? You know, mm-hmm. like you've seen her and yep. you know what to look for. So you're informed, she's informed, she's good, you're close to the hospital, you're quote unquote low risk. And so I think, yeah, the I think the data would show that in that setting, outcomes are not worse because of right. everything you said. And I think what happens sort of on a, on, a, on a higher level when people argue is people argue with extrapolating that to, okay, I'm gonna do my VBAC at home with someone who's only delivered four babies right. and I live an right. hour from the hospital and I don't have a working automobile. And right. then like, and okay, so both of those are home births, right? <laughs> right. But there's, you know, you but have a totally home birth, she, she has a home birth, but those are totally different in terms of what is the risk to the mother and baby and what are the options if things go south. And I think that that's where a lot of this gets confusing because I think many of the the people who are not so in favor of home births, it's it's circumstantial. It's because they don't have the option for what you had, right? right. Which is sort of like the, the the ideal setup for a home birth. And that's a lot of, in the US at least, I think that's where a yeah. lot of the arguments lie. 
Well, I think the answer to that is then working on systems-based yeah. issues, right? Yeah. And so not just saying that home birth is bad and continuing to teach that and not having this polarization of, you know, kind of more philosophy of physiological supported, whether it be at home or what have you, and um, more intervention, I think that we are just very polarized in this country. And I think that is what creates harm on both levels. Right. Wait, I we're think polarized happens, in this country? Are you I know, sure? I, I that's know. the I first I'm hearing of this. <laughs> yeah, I never heard about polarization in this country. <laughs> but I, 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 I mean, thought everyone's all unified. I know, oh, all you right. can, but you can draw those lines. And I think that it hurts both camps because then what happens is you know, a, a home birth community and midwives and practitioners feel less and less able to want to transfer, to want to do those things because of the perceived, both both perceived and real judgments and treatments and things like that. And so then they began to do potentially more and more riskier things, which then confirms, you know, the OB yeah. mind's impressions of look how dangerous this is. Yeah. So I think your sol- the solution really comes down to integrative care, building good relationships, standardizations of things, making those systems-based work so that it can be a safe option for some women and not all, right? Yeah. But for some women and not ostracizing or vilifying the location versus understanding the needs and desires that go into that. And if someone is appropriate, then having systems that support that and make it safe. And that's what we are lacking in the U.S. But the answer then isn't just to throw, you know, the baby out with the bathwater and say that that's bad. Right. The answer is then to maybe look into fixing some of our structures that, that make that bad. Because are some of those structures are making outcomes bad for everyone, regardless of where you deliver, right? I mean, the U.S. just has a lot of work to do in terms of our outcomes for moms and babies. So, so interesting. Did you have any I'm curious, are there any issues with like healthcare coverage to like insurance companies say we're yes. not covering home births? Yes. I, I didn't even think about this before the podcast yes. just came up. So what were those? So I'm curious. That's, so that's another huge issue, which unfortunately for those women that could be good candidates, the system again works against them. So as a comparison, right, my son's birth was in the hospital that I was affiliated with. So my insurance completely covered it. Probably, I don't, I don't remember looking at the bills, but probably it was maybe a $20,000 bill. I paid $100. And that was right. everything I paid. And that was my insurance copay for my hospitalization. Right. And the insurance probably paid the hospital, you know, it's a $20,000 bill, but they probably paid them, you know, five or seven or whatever it is. They negotiate exactly. something. Okay. Exactly. For our um, birth with my daughter, it was roughly $6,000, but insurance paid none of it. Some insurances, you can get some reimbursement after the fact. It depends on the language and the particular insurance. So some women will maybe able to like use their out of network benefits. So some women will get reimbursed. Ours did not allow that. And so we paid all of that out of pocket. Wow. And that that's so interesting. Yeah. So it's a huge difference and obviously curtails who is able to access that. Just unfortunately, like many aspects of our healthcare, um, you know, people that have the means have have more options. You made this decision and you're you're plowing forward. How did it go? I mean, listen, COVID broke out in the middle of your pregnancy, so that's always <laughs> that's always fascinating. Uh, but in terms of, in terms of the the pregnancy and the birth, how'd that go? So the pregnancy was pretty similar. I had that heartburn again, but outside of that, um, it was pretty uncomplicated. Again, very lucky. I was thirty nine this time. Oh my god! Um, so even more AMA. <laughs> so old. All right. Yeah. So old. <laughs> um, and so, but very healthy. And you know, it's funny. I was exercising all throughout my pregnancy and doing all of these things, and then COVID hits. Right. So that was a stressor. And working. I think that. 
was actually a, a little bit of a challenge for me working in the hospital with COVID patients when all of this broke out and no one knows anything, you know, and so our pregnant women at increased risk, we don't know, but with the flu they are, maybe with this they are, who knows. So that was a little distressing, just not knowing. And I'm a pretty, risk doesn't usually bother me too much. I mean, I, I flew to Liberia during the Ebola crisis and worked in the hospitals there. So that gives you a little bit of background about right. <laughs> my, my sense of risk. But now, you know, being a mom, that's, that's different, right? And wanting to protect my child and not knowing what a potential exposure could mean for me or the baby. So that actually was a little stressful because I was due in June. And so working, especially April, it kind of March, everything closed down. So March, April, beginning of May was stressful. And then also just being in all of your full protective gear in my last trimester of pregnancy was physically not an easy feat as well. Yeah. yeah. So the end of pregnancy was tough. Um, and then on top of it, even though we were planning on home birth because of COVID, you know, normally one of the good things about home births is that you can have whoever you want there. There's no rules, there's no regulations, but that actually did change. So doulas were not, with our particular group, doulas were not allowed in the home and they actually only wanted people in the home that lived in the home. Right. So they didn't want, you know, grandma coming, this person coming, this person coming if they lived outside the home because they were a small group and they needed to protect themselves to make sure that they weren't exposed for their patients, which I totally got. Yeah. So what we had to actually do is have everyone who we had planned to be there. So my mom, um, my dad, who are, they're, they're divorced, so they live in separate households. So my mom, my dad, my sister all basically kind of moved in so that they could be here quarantined for the last two weeks before my birth. Wow. So, um, and then I went out of work. You're a brave, brave woman. Lord. So I went out of work and so I was literally sitting at home with all of these people who were staring and looking at me like, okay, when are you going to give birth? (laughs) Right. Every morning my mom would just come in. I'd be, she's like, you look too comfortable. I was like, I'm trying everything. I'm going for walks. I'm doing this. I even like drank a little Castor oil, I was like, I don't know, anything it takes. Let me have some of the, whatever tea they say brings on contractions. Sure, let me try it. And I just, nothing, nothing, nothing. In my mind, I was like, oh, I was 39 and three with my son. So I I could probably do 38 and something. Sure, sure. Just hoping the baby would come. Because there's also, you know, nothing. I couldn't go anywhere. I couldn't do anything. Everything was on lockdown. Yeah. It was Friday, Friday night. And I was just sitting there like, ugh, of course, nothing's going to happen today either. And I was, um, my due date was that Sunday. So this was Friday. I was 39 and five. And now I was annoyed because I went past when my son was born, right? So now I'm like extra annoyed. Like, what is going on? You know, watching a pot to boil. (laughs) And I went to bed, nothing going on. And then at midnight, my midwife had already gotten mad at me because she's like, anytime you feel anything, I was like, oh, you know, I've had a couple, maybe some pressure, maybe this. She's like, call me for anything. You know, don't use your, don't be an OB. Just call me for anything. Right. Don't use your judgment because we know, you know what happened last time you did that. Yes. Right. So she's like, if you're mucus plug, tell me, I want to know everything. She's like, okay. I'm like, okay, whatever. So at midnight, I'm like laying there in bed, like, oh, I feel some like Braxton Hicks. So, you know, some kind of cramping. So I called her almost to kind of, I think it'd be a little annoying. I was like, well, you wanted to know everything. So I'm having some cramping like, like every 10 minutes, but it doesn't hurt. And, you know, it's just, I can feel them and I'm conscious of it. So, you know, I don't think anything's happening, but just FYI. And then while I was in the bathroom on the phone with her, because my husband was asleep, I was like, oh yeah, like that one kind of twinged a little bit. And, you know, it's the first time that I've, I've had that. She's like, all right, well, She's like, because of your history, just keep an eye on it in the next and call me back in like 
20, 30 minutes and just let me know, you know, if you fall back asleep, I won't call you, but just let me know what you think. Mm -hmm. And I actually had to go back to look at the phone records to confirm this, but I, whatever time I called her, I want to say like 1230, my husband has an outgoing phone call nine minutes later saying she cannot get off the floor. You need to come now. <laughs> and I didn't believe it. Like looking back, I was like, give me your phone. Let me see the exact time you called her back. And it literally was like nine minutes later. Right, Because it's, so, it's, it's very clear that your entire sense of time is lost once you go yes. into labor. <laughs> I was, so I was like, well, maybe I'm just making it up. And it was like, you know, an, an 30 minutes later or something. No, it was literally nine minutes. I couldn't even make the phone call. My husband had to call and say, you should just come. Right. And so there's always two midwives that come. So we woke my mom up. My mom was in the room. My dad was pacing outside like in the 1950s commercial. Mm-hmm. Um, my son was asleep and my sister was there to take um, pictures actually. So we have like really nice birth pictures. And she got there and it was just really, I mean, the contractions are contractions, but I will say it felt totally different. I think just being comfortable and being in your own surroundings, you take for granted without having that stress and cortisol and all of those things, fight or flight kicking in. It just, I was just very comfortable and it was just really nice to be in my own environment. I wasn't even, I thought I was going to feel, I'm so close to the hospital, just take me to the hospital so I can get an epidural. Right. That's what I thought beforehand, right? Right. So I would just be like, you thought you're going to, you're going to tap out. I would just be like, never mind. Take, what was I thinking? This is dumb. Take me to go get my epidural. Why would anyone want to do this? What was your What was your plan for the mess? Oh, they they are amazing with it. They, they, have, they have a whole the, system they have the pool set up. and the whole thing. The, no, the, the I tub. Do the pool, and actually, because of COVID, they had stopped that temporarily. Mm. Um, but they have a whole like double setup that they do on your bed, and they basically follow you around with chuck pads everywhere. So we had like a whole painters like the um, yeah the painters tarp, not the slippery one, but like the fabric one. Yeah, yeah, yeah kind of down in the whole room and then they like do a whole double bed setup and wow. take care of everything and do all your laundry before you leave. So oh it's like God. nothing happens. Oh my it's God. like nothing happens. Yeah. It's pretty, it's pretty amazing. So they give you instructions. Like when Greg called and he had instructions of like kind of setting the bed up. Right. He was amazing. I think just being in his own space, he didn't feel like he was a third party at the hospital. He felt like ownership and was actually so much more involved with helping me through the contractions. Right. But you know, it never even once crossed my mind to think about an epidural. It was almost like it just, they don't exist. Like right. it, it wasn't even yeah, in my there. brain. Yeah. It just was like, hurry up. I want this to be done. But okay. it never even entered my mind that you know, an epidural was even right. uh, something that existed. So it just was, you know, my mom was there. She had actually had my brother's baby book. My sister-in-law had put together this amazing book for her, both his pictures and his birth pictures and his baby pictures. So she was actually showing me pictures and telling me her birth story with him. Wow. And like showing the midwives. And so I have these pictures like in between contractions, I'm like pointing to his picture. And um, it was really like, I felt even through our grieving, we were able to include him, I guess, in a way in that moment. Wow. Yeah. And have him there in some way or, or kind of you know, his thinking presence. about him. Yeah, his presence. Yeah, you, his felt, presence. you felt his presence there. There's no question. Yep. And, you know, the, one of the biggest differences I would say is in a hospital, the patient kind of has to cater to what the nurse or physician needs, right? So you have to get into a position that the nurse can then trace the baby or find the baby. It's kind of all about you need to do things to make it convenient for everyone else. Mm-hmm. Where in home, it's the opposite. So they followed me. They found the heart rate. 
whatever position I was in, they figured it out and they listened, you know, regularly. They have their standardization of intermittent monitoring. Um, so they did, they did all of that and they just follow your lead and let you go. And then they had some suggestions of positioning. And I had a, like a false alarm because I, I got to nine pretty quickly, mm-hmm. um, of course. And I, in my mind, I was like, okay, this is second baby. I can just, I don't feel any pressure, but I'm just going to push <laughs> because right. I just want this to be done. And five minutes into that, that did not work. And I was just irritated. And she was a little asynclitic. So the head was just kind of in a funny position and just didn't want to come down super quick. So that actually was the hardest part for me because I was like, she should be out. Like I, you know, this should be done. And then spent another 45 minutes just kind of literally having the position get into a better position. And then I stood up and when I now I understand the meaning of rectal pressure and urge to push like I never have before. I was like, oh, yes, it's time. And two pushes later, she was out. Wow. And um, it was kind of amazing because we didn't know the sex. I actually thought it was a boy. Mm. Um, I was sure we were having another boy. So my mom, the way that I found out was I remember her saying, I was right. She's a little brat. And and I was like, oh, I guess it's a girl. You know, we just do skin to skin right away. They do all of the checking everything of baby right on you. Right. Um, and just have this really nice uninterrupted time. And then they do all of the weights and measurements. And then when I went to shower, they helped me shower. And then my husband had her while they, while I showered. And then the other nice thing is that it, it was a little different with COVID. We did, we included some virtual visits in there, but typically they'll see you you know, they're there with you for about two to four hours after the birth and they leave once everything looks perfect. They see you the next day. You see your pediatrician the day after that and they'll see you again on day three, day seven, day 14, wow. one month, and then six weeks. Wow. So this whole idea of you just disappear from your OB and then you see them six weeks later. Right. It's so it's so different. My birth was relatively straightforward and quick and I was an OB and it was COVID. So we did, we did half of those or more right. with, with virtual visits or phone calls, but that support, it's, it's just, you know, it, it was, it was a lot more than, you know, what we typically do in an, in an OB world. Wow. So it, yeah, it was, it was really, really amazing. Looking back, obviously we've spoken a lot about, you know, how your, your thoughts have changed over the years about home births in general. But I'm curious on a professional level, how do you talk to patients about home birth now? Yeah, so I've had people, and it's really funny. I had one person who she knew I was an OB, and when I asked her, she was a fr- she was a relative of a friend, so I didn't know her. Mm-hmm. And I saw she was obviously pregnant. I was so excited, you know. Oh, where are you going to have your baby? And I could tell the hesitation. It's like all of a sudden you can read it in people. And she kind of skirted around it, knowing I was an OB, and then said something about home. And I was like, oh, that's, that's great. Who are you going to be with? You know, immediately kind of just affirming her first and foremost. And then I actually found out it was with my same group. So then I was like, oh, you're an amazing hands. That's awesome. But what I do is I say, you know, everything's about risk and benefits. These are the things that you need to look into. Being a low risk, you know, I do know that there are people that do VBACs and things like that. And again, it's all about risk and benefits for myself. I would probably counsel against that or not want that for myself. But again, people have autonomy. And unless we're going to say people can't make their own decisions, the best thing that you can do is really educate, counsel, give your reasons, give your concerns, talk about the evidence, and then support people in their decisions instead of shaming them. So I think that's one of the biggest takeaways I've gotten from is that even if I disagree with someone's decision, you know, understanding why first and foremost or what their motivations are, 
have they thought through benefits and risks? You know, what are what is their backup plan because things happen? Who are they going to be with? Engaging in a conversation instead of just automatically shame and judgment and why would you ever do that? Because that just closes the door, right? It just shows that you haven't even thought about why they might be interested in that. Just like there are women that I don't necessarily think are the best VBAC candidates, but I love VBACing people. Everyone I can, I try to, I, I, you know, just personally. And if I have a patient that I feel why it might not be a great option, I always start by saying I'm a huge proponent of this and I, and I see the benefits. You know, what, what for you, what's your motivation or what are the benefits you're looking at or what are the reasons that you don't want a C-section? Talk to me a little bit about that. Let's, and then I'm going to talk with you about my concerns and then, you know, let's talk about our plan that, you know, we could be comfortable with. And I, I had that happen recently with someone who got on board with a repeat section, but not that day and wanting to wait. And we came up with a plan that we were both, you know, okay with. And still saying, you know, I can't guarantee that, you know, nothing bad will happen, but that's life. You can't guarantee things. And I just think that showing people respect um, and understanding beats everything, even if I don't agree with you. And I just think, unfortunately, a little bit in our field, we're a little paternalistic and judgmental and, okay, so you just want to kill your baby, you know? And I even remember some of that in, in residency, hearing that, you know, someone refused GBS treatment and I, and I get it and I understand the benefits and why we want to, why we recommend, you know, prophylactic use. But I think that we need to change how we interact with patients and, you know, we're, we're really there to support them this whole time and to help create safe births for the families, but, but safe and res- safety and respect and empathy and kindness are not mutually respected. Those things need to go hand in hand. So I think that's what I've learned from it is just engaging and showing them that I respect you. I'm not going to, I'm not judging you. And I understand that you have values and concerns that are going to go into your decision-making. I'm here to bring my evidence and my training and my concerns and what I think and to here to help you make the best decision. Yeah. And I think that that is not always taught you know, we're kind of taught that we're the doctors, we're the ones that have the degree, you need to listen to me or don't even bother coming to me. And, and I just think that that's where we go, go wrong. I don't think that everyone needs to have a home birth. And there's plenty of people that I'm like, eh, I, would, I wouldn't do that, right? But the answer is not to, to vilify people or to shame people. It's to like, hey, let's, let's open the doors of communication. So that's like my biggest thing is really respectful collaborative care, both between professionals and with um, our, our families. Yeah, no, it's, it's not you unique to OB. I mean, this is medicine in general. It's just about, you know, having that honest and open communication. And I think that it's hard to learn that as a physician, as a provider, you know, physician, nurse, midwife, whoever you are, you know, if you're yes. providing care or helping people through care, I think it it's very difficult to get the right balance. Because on the one hand, there are some people who don't get enough of what you're talking about, this ability to listen to people and understand them and really try to get at their motivations and try to come to some, you know, understanding, you know, this is what I think, you know, is the right way to go. This is what you think is the right way to go. Ultimately, it's, it's your decision. It's, you know, your health, your family, your body. And, and to come to some sort of uh, understanding that's not a conflict, right? Even if you disagree, right. like you said, it's not a conflict. And so right. there's people who can't or, or get that. Or even if you yeah. decide that you're not the right 
Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, to say, yeah, sure. You know, I, I just don't think that our, our plans don't align and I don't think I'm the right person to take care of you. That doesn't mean that I think you're some horrible person, but maybe I'm just not the right person yeah. for you. I mean, that's that's reasonable too, right? It doesn't mean that you have to just do and cater to what every person wants. Right. So that's on the table as well. 100%. I think that some people don't get that. I do think what I sometimes see amongst our younger physicians who are maybe getting that a lot better than we did in training, meaning they're very open to these ideas. Sometimes they have the opposite problem, that they have the inability to tell someone what their opinion is, to say, yes. you know, they just won't be able to say which they think is better. Like, well, you have option A and option right. B, but a lot of people are like, well, all right, you're the doctor. Which one do you think is what, better? Right, I may disagree, right. but I want to know what right. your opinion is. Like, I don't, right. if my plumber if said to me, sister. yeah. Yeah, if, if, if this or, is your yeah. sister, what would you tell her to do? Right. Or if my if my plumber came in and said, well, I can use this pipe or this pipe, what do you want? I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> like, you tell me you're the plumber. Now, obviously, if he said, well, this pipe is more expensive, but more durable and this pipe is cheaper, but, you know, not, not going to last as long. All right. I have a decision to make, but yes. there's only one choice. You tell me what it is. And so yes. I think that there's really that balance and it's hard yes. to train because you're spending so much time learning the knowledge. It's, yes. This is like a meta level of training of how to use that knowledge in communicating with people, which is very high level stuff. It's not yes. easy. I think one of the things that I found myself doing, and I don't know if I learned this per se, or it just kind of became my style, is that I would, you know, present everything and I would say, I will let you know if I think that there is a clear winner or, yeah. you know, if there's a reason that I think that this is the clear winner and it might be a close call and I might say, well, I think this edges this one out. I might say, I think this is the clear winner and why. Um, if it's not outside of standard of care and you still want option B, you know, I'll say, okay, I don't, I think that's the lesser of the two, but okay, I'll make it very clear if I think it's outside standard of care. And I'll also let you know if I'm just, you know, sometimes there are situations where I'm like, eh, either is fine. It's 50 yep. 50. It really comes down to yeah. what you think. And I try to say that. I try to either say, I think both of these are equal and it really comes down to like what's most important for you in the setting or what's going to, you know, what's the one that's kind of, you're going to feel better about trying. And then I will say, I will let you know if I think that there's a clear winner or one that edges it out. And what I would probably do, again, letting you know if the other option I think is still reasonable yep. or safe versus if something is starting to go into the boundaries to me of unsafe. So I try to broach it like that. And I, I found that's helpful. I tell people the same thing. I'll say, listen, if it's a toss up, I'm going to tell you it's a toss up you know, choose. If I think one is better, fine. And I said, I'm not going to let you do something that's crazy without me telling you. Right. right. Like, if you're like, I want to do right. this. I'd be like, that's nuts. Like, don't right. do that. And listen, <laughs> people can do it. It's a free country. They can choose not to listen to me, but I will voice my opinion. Amber, I love talking to you. You're the best. I miss uh, you. Well, See, you're the I, reason 2012. What a great year. Vintage. You guys are a vintage year. We are. We should get like minted or something. <laughs> <laughs> we need like jackets. Like, maybe we'll talk about in our clubhouse. We need to make ourselves like vintage jackets. <laughs> awesome. Well, listen, thank, thank you for coming on and tell your story, telling well, your story. Thank you for being amazing. And I mean, uh, four years plus more of being there afterwards of being around you and, you know, seeing the way that you care for patients and continue to do so um, has never left me. And, and a lot of that stuff I've taken, you know, into my own. So I want to thank you for that. Thank you for listening to the Healthful Woman podcast. To learn more about our podcast, please visit our website at www.healthfulwoman.com. That's H-E-A-L-T-H-F-U-L-W-O-M-A-N.com. If you have any questions about this podcast or any other topic you would like us to address, please feel free to email us at hw at healthfulwoman.com. Have a great day. The information discussed in Healthful Woman is intended for educational uses only and does not replace medical care from your physician. 
Healthful Woman is meant to expand your knowledge of women's health and does not replace ongoing care from your regular physician or gynecologist. We encourage you to speak with your doctor about specific diagnoses and treatment options for an effective treatment plan.